The fourth thing we want to notice in the creation account, if we want to take account of uh, the entire situation, is the divine environment, which of course is the most crucial of all. Acts 17 teaches us in God we live and move and have our being. He sustains us and he enables us to do what it is that we do. And therefore we cannot function, especially we cannot function in ethics apart from God. And in particular, we cannot function apart from his spoken word. So if you want to know what part of the situation is, you have to ask, what does God say about it? In Genesis 1.28, which I think we should look at here for a moment, we see that God's demand governs everything that we do. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. You see, all of man's life is caught up in this kingdom task of subduing the earth to the glory of God and advancing his ends in the world. Now from that I would infer the principle that's called the ubiquity of ethics. Sounds a lot more complicated than it really is. The ubiquity of ethics. What does ubiquity mean in theology? you budding theologians in the audience. What is the ubiquity of God? Oh, good. We have some people who will pass their presbytery exams. God is everywhere. That's right. The ubiquity of ethics means that everything we do has a moral aspect to it, or that every action is a moral action, moral or immoral, if you want to put it that way. God confronts us in every choice. Nothing is morally neutral. Everything we do is either right or it is wrong. Do you agree with that? Do you agree that everything we do is either right or wrong? Is there any ethical neutrality? Is there any place that man can run, any area of life that a man in which a man can function where he won't have to answer to God on the judgment day? <laughs> let me, um, let me not, uh, I'm not really skirting the question. Let me just say that dreams are not something that we do. However, I do tend to think that dreams are something for which we can be held accountable. Because it seems to me there are... So I, I have sometimes myself had dreams that I know have been generated from my, um, my own attitudes. All right? For instance, if, if, if you have a, a grudge against somebody and then you dream, you know, that you cut his throat. <laughs> I tend to think that sort of thing... Um, yeah. <laughs> has in its origin moral culpability about it. But uh, for the time being, let's, we're speaking of something that we do or attitudes we develop, and every one of them is moral or immoral. Yes? Very good example. I was going to use that. <laughs> Strawberry and chocolate were my illustration. But uh, All right, let's ask ourselves, can it ever be immoral to choose a chocolate ice cream cone instead of a vanilla ice cream cone? It can be. What? <laughs> she, now, there's somebody who's got the situational perspective down. If you look at all the facts and it turns out the chocolate's bad for you, then you ought not to eat chocolate ice cream. But I'm sure that the questioner assumed that chocolate and uh, vanilla are equally nourishing or unnourishing, as the case may be. Well, let me ask you this. What if you made your choice in favor of chocolate ice cream without consideration of the glory of God? Would that be a good act? What if you did it in an unloving motive? What if you did it because you knew that the, that was the last batch of chocolate in the ice cream, uh, I mean in the, uh, in the cooler, and your brother couldn't have it if you took it? 
Now, the choice of chocolate ice cream could be an evil choice, couldn't it? If it didn't mean, if it wasn't motivated by love and if it didn't serve the glory of God. And what if this choice of chocolate ice cream in, encompassed stealing the ice cream from, you know, the local ice cream parlor, violating the standards of God? No, I can see that even the choice of chocolate ice cream has a moral dimension to it. But totally apart from stealing it or doing it um, out of spite for your brother or something like that, everything we do is to be done for the glory of God. What does Paul say? Whether you eat or whether you drink, or whatsoever you do, do it to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. And so Paul even encompasses eating ice cream cones. <coughs> the ubiquity of ethics. Nothing is morally neutral. Nothing is. Now there are choices, we're going to come back to this, Don, to satisfy you a bit, when we talk about adiaphora, where given proper motivation and the proper goal, uh, God's word does not rule out either one of two legitimate options for me. But that isn't to say that's a moral, a morally neutral action, just because it still must be done with the proper motivation and goal. So there's no action in this life that is devoid of a moral character. And it's important to remember that, because if there were, then the unbeliever would, would spend the rest of his life in that safety zone, so that he wouldn't have to answer to God. But God will make us answerable for every deed done in our bodies. Every deed. And that even means whether you put on blue socks rather than black. I don't think there's any question but that the distinction between moral and non-moral good is a legitimate distinction. The issue is whether one draws the distinction in a biblical fashion or not. Okay, let us say that somebody claimed that the choice of the flavor of ice cream is a non-moral good. It's a matter of pursuing non-moral good. That it has nothing to do with morality. Then I should say that that filling into the categories is contrary to the biblical teaching. But there are non-moral goods. I mean, there are aesthetic goods, aren't there? Now, somebody could argue, as, as C.S. Lewis does in The Abolition of Man, that even aesthetics has a moral dimension to it. But um, I think there are areas, you know, you can talk about aspects of decision or aspects of objects uh, apart from their ethical features, which is to say, to speak of non-moral good. I want to know which is the best of these two knives, which is to say, which is the sharpest, which cuts the best. Seems to me that's a decision in the area of non-moral good. But what, do you want to pursue that a little bit further? How does Frank and do it in a way that makes you suspect? Okay, let's ask now, what does the fall, this has uh, all been under the category of creation, we're going to look at the fall now. What does the fall introduce into our situation that's different? Remember, if we're going to look at the whole situation, we've been given a lot of factors already to look at, but what does the fall add to our situation? Well, before the fall, Adam knew clearly and immediately how to apply God's word. He knew what was required of him in his concrete present situation. He knew what would bring blessing. He knew what would bring the curse of God. He understood God's will, and that understanding was not defective due to his ignorance of the situation or of the goal the facts, what have you. What has sin done? Sin has deprived us of the facility to apply God's word. That's why we struggle, as, uh, as some of us did uh, in a number of different situations during our coffee break, with very torturous questions. As sinners, we no longer have the facility to apply properly God's word to our situation. It has become very complicated, very difficult, whereas for Adam it was clear and immediate. Notice how much of man's situation was involved in the fall. 
Just think about it for a minute. Trees were involved. Interpersonal relations were involved. See, the natural world was involved. The human environment was involved. Uh, demonic temptations were involved. The preternatural world. Uh, dust was involved. The vegetable kingdom was involved. And one's relationship to God was certainly involved. You see how f the fall affected every element of man's situation. <clears throat> Let's look at aspects of the... Um, of the fall of man with respect to the natural world now underneath the fall the forbidden fruit indicates that there's a limitation on man's dominion man is to have dominion over all of creation but God says there's an exception the paramount thing Adam is that you're going to be obedient and submissive to me and so your subduing does not mean that you've become a God unto yourself and a Lord unto yourself you subdue but you always remember by obedience to this command by this exception by this tree that I am the Supreme Lord. And it was by misinterpreting the facts of the natural situation that Eve made the wrong moral decision, didn't she? She thought the fruit was good for her, that it would make her like God. Was that, is that the fact? Is that true? Would it make her like God? No. And so by misunderstanding the facts, you see, she was not able to have the proper application of God's commands. Let's look at the... Um, the preternatural world for a minute, the serpent, the animal realm. There we see an inversion of the creation order. The snake came to have dominion over man instead of being subdued by man. Here's the problem posed to Eve. How should she respond to an animal speaking? In the light of God's word, that animal should be subdued rather than subduing her. How should she have responded? Well, she should have brought God's standard to bear on the facts. Instead, she allowed God's standard to be altered because of the facts. And so we learn something, we want to tell Joseph Fletcher, when we look at the account of the fall. When we start bending God's standards because of the facts, then we're not living by his standards at all. Let's look at the uh, human environment in the fall. Here is uh, Eve in this social situation, the wife of Adam. Instead of being a helpmeet to him, Eve becomes a tempter to him. She imitates Satan, doesn't she? Rather than imitating God. Adam doesn't take the leadership. He submits to his wife. You see how the whole world becomes topsy-turvy in the fall? Eve is subdued by the snake, and Adam is subdued by his wife. That'll be a lesson to you, men. Okay, another factor. The preternatural situation having to do with Satan as an evil spirit. Eve misinterpreted the status of Satan and therefore his authority was attracted to his subtlety thereby renouncing the authority of God's word over her in the situation. In the book of Galatians Paul says a very interesting thing. He says even if an angel comes to you preaching another gospel let that angel be what? Accursed. Anathema. And Eve should have said the same thing. Even if an angel should appear telling you to do something contrary to God's word. Don't you dare do it. All right, and finally, the divine situation in the fall. There's a specific disobedience to God's word brought about by a false interpretation of the situation, a failure to see the whole world in the light of God's word. And that's the nature of our sin, too. When we fail to see the whole world in the light of God's word, then we're not going to perform according to God's demands and commands. Man attempted to overturn the creation order. The fruit was taken out of its proper place. 
The serpent was seen out of its proper interpretation and place. The wife situation was inverted and on and on. You see, there was a mix-up of God's good world. And that resulted in God's word being overturned in the creation order. So what happens when God enters the situation and the world has been turned topsy-turvy by this situation ethic of Adam and Eve? Well, the natural realm. We see that man will return to dust and he'll have thorns in his labor. Okay, so God judges the natural world. God judges the human environment, the social world as well. Now there'll be sexual shame between Adam and Eve. There'll be pain in childbirth. There'll be a lording over the wife by the husband. And so it's interesting to read in the chapters following Genesis 3 the disintegration that enters into all the social situations and institutions of man. The family, you see, breaks down as brother kills brother. Business breaks down. Government breaks down. Education breaks down. Art is dominated by pagan men. So the whole world becomes topsy-turvy because of an improper ethic by Adam and Eve. How about the preternatural world? What happens here? Well, now men are under the sway of Satan's evil devices. According to the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation, up until the coming of Jesus Christ and the institution of his kingdom, all the nations were deceived by Satan. So the whole pre... Uh, well, the whole hi uh, history of man previous to the coming of Christ is one known by the sway and deception of Satan. And then, of course, the divine situation is altered, too. God comes to man now not in fellowship, but comes to man in judgment. God doesn't come to bless man, he comes to curse him. God doesn't come, you see, to reward, but to show wrath. And so the situation, once improperly interpreted and responded to, now rises up in judgment on man. You see how God uses every aspect of the situation to judge man? The natural world's affected, the human environment's affected, the preternatural world's affected, and the divine human relation is affected. Now our situations present, present to us not merely issues of morality, but temptations in morality. See the difference between Adam and us? Adam saw the world and every situation as a responsibility to perform in God's service. But now the world has become not simply a responsibility for us, it, has, it presents not simply moral issues for us to solve, but the world has become a source of temptation. This whole situation has been inverted. We now live under judgment and curse and wrath. And for that reason, the world can lead us astray. Now anything, not just Satan and the fruit, but anything can bring ethical defeat into the life of God's people. Our situations are pervaded with the effects of the fall. And that brings us to the third element of our past situation, and that's redemption. We've looked at creation, we looked at fall, we have to look at redemption. And I want to look first of all at redemption accomplished, and then redemption applied. In the New Testament, we see that something has decisively changed. In all of this, the natural world, the human environment, the preternatural environment, the divine human situation, something has decisively changed. The Lord has fulfilled his law for his people. He has suffered for their transgressions. He has taken away their guilt. You notice how everything I've told you so far as a common New Testament theme is pervaded with an ethical substratum? The Lord did what? Fulfilled the law. The Lord died under the curse of sin. The Lord took away our transgressions. He removed our guilt. He was raised from the dead and has shown his victory over the natural, social, and preternatural worlds. Right? 
By being raised from the dead, Christ shows that God has defeated the curse of the natural world. By, raise, by being raised from the dead as the temple of God and calling us to himself as his spiritual temple, Christ, you see, conquers the human environment by creating a new humanity in him. Christ has conquered Satan by his resurrection so that he now lords it over all the angelic realm and Christ has now restored us to divine favor. You begin to see then how you can do all of ethics in this situational way. The creation can be understood this way, the fall, and even our redemption. Matthew 28 tells us that Christ rules over every situation. All power and authority in heaven and earth is his. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21. Although I really need to be moving on faster in my notes, I just this is really exciting material to me, and I think it's worth looking at. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him to sit at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and has put all things in subjection under his feet, and has given him to be head over all things for the sake of the church, which is his body. You see, Christ, by accomplishing our redemption, has reasserted his sovereignty over all of man's situation. And that's why Paul can say in Romans, the sixth chapter, that even sin no longer has dominion over us. We were to have dominion over creation. Creation as curse from God comes to have dominion over us because of our sin. And in Christ, sin no longer has dominion, but we have the upper hand again. So Romans, the sixth chapter, at verse 6 and 11. <coughs> Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, that so we should no longer be in bondage to sin. Even so, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God, in Christ Jesus. Then verse 14, that familiar passage, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the curse of the law, but you're under the powerful grace of God. Yes, I paraphrastically ended that because I don't want to get into a discussion of the meaning of that last portion just yet. Sin no longer has dominion over us is the point. And so Christ has restructured our environment. We have a new interpersonal relationship, the new community of God, 1 Peter 2.9. We've been restored to a rightful place as lords over creation. 1 Corinthians 3.21 is a verse that is often missed when um, we go through that. It's worth looking at. 1 Corinthians 3.21 Wherefore, let no one glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ, and Christ is God. So sin doesn't have dominion over us. The social situation doesn't have dominion over us. Creation doesn't have dominion over us. We are lords over creation again in Christ. We're not subject to demon power anymore. 1 John 2, verse 13. I write unto you, fathers, because ye know him who is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the evil one. I look at 1 John 4, verse 4. Ye are of God, my little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John 5, verse 18. We know that whosoever is begotten of God sinneth not, 
but he that was begotten of God keepeth himself, and the evil one touches him not. And so you see, we've been restored to fellowship with God, we've been adopted into his family, we have a new relationship to men, we're our lords over creation, the demons are subject to us in Christ's name. Even temptations can be a source of ethical strengthening for us. Temptation, you see, is a source of the unbeliever being led into further and further judgment. But for the Christian, God sends temptations and trials into our lives, what? To purify our faith and to strengthen us in our walk before him. Well, let's look at redemption applied, too, if we're going to look at the whole situation. By this time, I think Joseph Fletcher might be just a bit weary with us, but since we want to look at the situation, we've got to continue and look at the whole situation. You see, each one of us as individuals has a particular past history, don't we? We all have a different past history, a different life of sin, a particular experience of regeneration and faith, a particular pattern of growth in Christ. Our individual histories condition our present situation. Each one of us has a specific calling from God, a specific vocation. Each one of us has unique gifts. Each one has a function in the body of Christ. Each one of us has different temptations, different moral challenges, different ethical situations to master. So the book of Hebrews speaks of each one's besetting sin. And so ethical reasoning requires that you not only look at the history of the human race as a whole, not only look at the Christian church as a whole, but now look at also at your particular history, at your own strengths and weaknesses, at your own conversion, at your own calling. These too must be evaluated and made factors in the light of God's word. Well, we're going to have to really start moving here if we're going to finish on time tonight. We also, if we're going to look at the whole situation when we make ethical decisions, have to look at the future, future events. This might be subtitled the relationship of ethics to eschatology. There's a sense in which the Christian can say that the future casts a shadow over the present. Present events are always being directed by God and always to a very definite outcome. God has a program which is going to be completed and fulfilled whether we go along with it or not. So where are we going? Well, I think there's two things we have to take into account when we ask where God is intending to take us. One is the question of the millennium, the kingdom of God on earth and its future. And the second is the question of the return of Jesus Christ, the blessed hope that that offers us. Our goal in ethics, I think, is to work to achieve the kingdom of God on earth and to bring about a situation as close to that that will be accomplished in the consummation of human history as we can. We are obliged to maximize righteousness in our present situation to overcome sin and the curse of sin in the world, looking to the consummation of our efforts that God will bring about in the future. The Bible teaches us that everyone who looks forward to Christ's kingdom purifies himself. Often the Bible says that Christ's return is a purifying teaching as well, one that will affect our ethical decisions. So let's look for just a moment at some of the ethical implications of the second coming. First Peter 3.11 gives us one of the ethical implications of Christ's return. There we read, And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
verse 9 of 1 Peter 3 had already said, not rendering evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but contrawise blessing, for thereunto were ye called that ye should inherit a blessing. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3 as well. Verse 10 says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in which the heavens are going to pass away with a great noise and the elements are going to be dissolved with fervent heat and the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing that these things are thus all to be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in all holy living and godliness? See, if you really believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, what kind of people should you be? If you really believe this world is going to be dissolved with fervent heat round about you, what kind of person should you be? What kind of scale of values should you have? I mean, is this physical world that which is of most importance to you? If you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? Look at 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. There we have another implication, another ethical implication, the second coming. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now are we children of God, and it is not yet manifest what we shall be. We know that if he shall be manifested, we shall be like him, for we shall see him even as he is. And everyone that hath this hope set on him purifieth himself even as he is pure. You see, in this world, you're to let the vision of the glorified Savior be your model your model of holiness and your motivation to holiness. Moreover, 2 Peter 3, verse 14, and 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 to 10, stressing the suddenness of the Lord's return, teach us that, our lives should be, that in our lives we should be ready to meet the Lord, ready to confront Him face to face, ready to come into His presence at any moment. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, I'm going through these very quickly because of the press of time, each one deserves development, but I want you to get it into your notes. 1 Corinthians 15:58. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not vain in the Lord. Why? Because a coming day of resurrection will show that death has no sting and that the grave does not have a victory over us. Seeing that these things are true, you should always be abounding in the work of the Lord. And now let me bring up and dis discourse for a little while here on the whole question of rewards. We've seen that if we really believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, our scale of values will change, we'll be motivated to have the purity of Jesus Christ, we'll be ready to come into his presence, and all of our labor will be fruitful labor in the Lord's kingdom. But there's another aspect of the second coming of Christ, and that's that at his coming he's going to distribute rewards. The Bible teaches us that we will inherit an incorruptible crown. 1 Corinthians 9.25, 1 Peter 5.4, James 1.12, 2 Timothy 4.8. The Bible teaches us that we will inherit the kingdom of God. Matthew 25.34, Colossians 1.12. The Bible teaches us that we will inherit the Lord himself as our highest reward. Psalm 16, verse 5, Psalm 73, verses 24 to 26. Lamentations 3, verse 24. Moreover, the Bible teaches us that there will be degrees of reward. We've already seen that there will be an incorruptible crown, the kingdom of God, and the Lord himself inherited by all those that are his saints. 
But the Bible teaches us that there are going to be degrees of reward. It also teaches there will be degrees of punishment. Let's look at Luke 12, 47 to 48. This is one place where that's taught in the Bible. And that servant who knew his Lord's will and made not ready nor did according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. And to whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. And to whom they commit much of him will they ask the more. God will punish according to degrees. God will also reward according to degrees. Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatsoever ye do, do heartily as unto the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord ye shall receive the recompense of the inheritance. Ye serve the Lord Christ. Do it heartily, because you know that God rewards according to recompense. And so those who serve him well will be rewarded well. Those who serve him less well will give, be given less reward. So there will be degrees of reward in heaven, in the, in the final kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let me just explain, just because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding when people first hear this doctrine, that does not mean that there's going to be a sense of dissatisfaction in heaven. Perhaps the best analogy that's ever been given that I've heard, and one that I've used ever since I've heard it, because it, it helps, I think, is um, during this life, I think we're all developing a capacity to shine as light bulbs in the Lord's kingdom. And we're all going to shine to the extent of our capacity. We're all going to be rewarded and enjoy the Lord to the extent of our capacity to enjoy Him. And some of us are going to be 60-watt bulbs in heaven, and some of us are going to be 100-watt bulbs. All right? That doesn't mean the 60-watt bulbs are going to somehow be less than what they're supposed to be and feel unfulfilled and unsatisfied. But it still means that they'll be rewarded less. There'll be degrees of reward just as there are degrees of punishment. But there will be no dissatisfaction. Just as in hell, there'll be no sense of mitigation. I mean, the man who's punished less in hell is not going to say, well, I guess it really could be worse. Although it's true it could be worse, he won't worry about it being worse. It'll be as bad as it has to be for him. Well, now, this raises an interesting question. Is there a sense in which Christians should be egoistic? I mean, in the broad, broadest sense. Should our own happiness and safety, should our own well-being be a proper goal for our conduct? Now, of course, I mean keeping it in its context, always in constant connection with the glory of God, motivated by love, always taking into account the long-term effects and the final goal, and the final rewards that will be uh, meted out by God, should we seek our own happiness and reward? Do you really think so? Doesn't that sound selfish to you? Very good. The Bible teaches us to flee the wrath to come, to lay hold on that sure anchor within the veil, to benefit from the life more abundant which Christ offers us. Look at Mark 10, verses 29 and 30. Mark 10 at verse 29. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel's sake. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. Now, can you really imagine that Jesus said that 
And then he would add, but of course, don't take that into account when you do your good deeds. No, he was saying it precisely to motivate you unto good deeds. He was saying there will be reward. God is not mocked. He won't let you have the recompense of an evil man if you perform as a good man. He will give you reward in this life and in the life to come. Very definitely, the Bible stimulates good behavior by the offer of reward. In fact, there are a lot of people who, are, who tend toward what I call Christian asceticism. All right? The idea, we're not supposed to ever be happy, we're supposed to live uncomfortable and, and unpleasant lives, and uh, we certainly shouldn't uh, you know, be looking out for ourselves or seeking reward. We should be flagellating ourselves. We should, uh, we should really be putting ourselves down and not caring at all. You know, Our heads should be in the dust. Woe is me. I, I deserve nothing. And, of course, it's a proper spiritual attitude to know that you don't deserve anything. But now should you go out and try to deserve something? Well, you bring out that the Bible tells people, look, there's going to be reward if you do the Lord's will. God's will is such that he offers good benefits. The proper consequences follow if you obey the law of God. And they'll say to that, because of this undying asceticism in them, yes, the Bible offers that, but that's not the purest motive for doing God's will. Do you understand the argument? That's right. There are some low lives in the kingdom of God that have to be offered, you know, something. It's the old, you know, uh, carrot on a stick routine with the horse. They've got to be offered something out there so that you'll stimulate them to do what's right. But God's a lot more pleased if you do it without any consideration of reward whatsoever. I don't think so. Matthew, the 6th chapter, verses 19 to 21, it seems to me prescribe rewards as one of our motives. <clears throat> Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. What does Jesus say? Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust rust consume and where thieves break through and steal. But, notice this is an imperative, it's a command, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth consume and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where thy treasure is, there will thy heart be also. Jesus says you ought to lay up reward for yourself in heaven. You ought to be stimulated to good deeds by the offer of reward. And I think it's very important to note just here Two verses in particular. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24. We can add to that chapter 10, verse 13. And then 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Look first then at the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 6, verse 24. And Jehovah commanded us to do all these statutes to fear Jehovah our God for our good always. See, if we keep the law of God, we're pursuing our own good. And so when people suggest to us that God's prohibition on homosexuality serves no proper end in society, it doesn't achieve anything for us, and therefore we oughtn't to worry about it, point them to Deuteronomy 6.24. Every command of God has been given because God in his omniscience knows what is best for us. God does not give us laws just so that he can sit up in heaven and torture us and say, let's see if these rats can run the next maze that I lay down for them. Sometimes we have that idea that the law has been given just to make it hard on us. No, God said, I give you this law for your good. 
If you'll obey this law, good will accrue to you. Deuteronomy 10.13 suggests the same thing. To keep the commandments of Jehovah and his statutes which I command thee this day for thy good. And so let's do away with the idea that we're somehow wooden legalists who only do the law of God because it's the law of God. Now we are to do the law if God says we are to do it, to be sure. And if you don't see what good will come from it, that's different from God saying good will come from it. He doesn't promise you're always going to see it immediately. But that's not the issue. The issue is whether we trust him that his promises are secure and true, that if we do the law, it will be for our good. Now look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, where this alleged ascetic Paul, world-hating Paul, who wanted to get away from the joys of life and wouldn't consider anything but heavenly reward, says to us in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, For bodily exercise is profitable for a little, but godliness is profitable for all things having promise of the life which now is and of that which is to come. Paul says godliness will bring reward not only in this life, but in the future life as well. Jesus said, I'll reward you not only with persecutions, but with increased families and houses and homes and joys of that nature, as well as with eternal life. So we really need much more time on this subject that much, I think, by way of introduction anyway. The second coming of Jesus Christ, in particular, the offer of rewards at the second coming of Jesus Christ, should stimulate us to good works. Now, the other aspect of, of future events in eschatology that needs to be taken into account is the millennium. I have done a little bit of reading on the question of the millennium, and I have understood some of the arguments that people have advanced back and forth on this subject, I'm sometimes unhappy with the arguments that I see and I often disagree with the people I read. But what makes me disturbed more than anything else is the attitude that it doesn't make any difference. That this is just another one of those angels on the head of a pen, worthless, trivial debates of the theologians. Now listen, we may not all agree tonight on our view of the millennium. All right, there may be some premillennialists here, there may be some amillennialists, and there may be some who believe the biblical position. <laughs> All seriousness. We may disagree as to what the biblical view is, but let's not have any of us say that God gives us a revelation of some truth in the Bible and it makes no difference. Do you know how insulting that is to God? That he revealed something about his kingdom on earth, about the millennium, and yet we say, oh, it's trivial. Yeah, we can debate it when we have time. All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. And to the degree that we ignore any teaching of God's Word, to that degree we are not perfectly equipped unto every good work. Now, because of the shortness of time, I'm going to skip the area that would be very easy to be a hobby horse for me and to talk about the implications of the millennial teaching of Scripture. I can assure you that if I were a premillennialist, I would argue there are ethical implications to premillennialism. I believe there are ethical implications to amillennialism. But above all, because I think it is biblical, if I can say that in all humility, and, and, and because I have studied it at some length, I believe that if you hold a postmillennial confidence that God intends his kingdom to be spread over the earth through the evangelistic mandate of the Great Commission and expects all nations to be subdued to him, teaching them whatsoever I have commanded you, then you have a great ethical obligation laid upon you.
But above all, because I think it is biblical, if I can say that in all humility, and, and, and because I have studied it at some length, I believe that if you hold a post-millennial confidence that God intends His kingdom to be spread over the earth through the evangelistic mandate of the Great Commission and expects all nations to be subdued to Him, teaching them whatsoever I have commanded you, then you have a great ethical obligation laid upon you. God will not put up with, we can't polish brass on a sinking ship. God never lets us to, never allows us to let up in the battle with Satan and the world and sin. God expects his kingdom to advance. He expects it to be victorious. He expects the Great Commission to be fulfilled. And to the degree that the Great Commission is not being fulfilled, we cannot blame that on God. Jesus said, all power and authority in heaven and earth is mine. There's no power lacking in the Savior. Moreover, he says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so there's no absence of the Savior with that power. And therefore, if the Great Commission's not being fulfilled, it's because of the irresponsibility of the church. Well, enough lecture on the millennium. I could go on. I think you know. <clears throat> I've been teaching the book of Revelation for a couple of years, and... Uh, in Sunday school, and it's, it just goes on and on. There's a lot to that. But one way or another, please remember, as you're dealing in ethics, that your doctrine of the millennium has implications for your behavior. Let's, let's move on now to the present situation. We've looked at the past, we've looked at the future, and there's an awful lot we must say about the present situation as well. <laughs> what is the situation that faces us right now? Well, the first thing that can be said, and most obviously, is that the natural world is still God's creation. It's still God's creation, but it's now under the curse of man's fall. It's under the curse of sin. And thus, while every fact continues to reveal God to us, every fact and every experience of life poses moral questions and moral challenges to us as well. Every experience is a potential temptation to sin. Every experience can work against our ethical integrity. And so what can we say? We can say that in the present situation we still believe in the ubiquity of that. There is no moral neutrality now that the world is under the curse of sin. Everything we do is either right or wrong. Our situation continues to be a means of applying God's law and God will hold us accountable for every application of his word to our situation. So anytime we get into a moral quandary or a moral confusion in our present situation, let us not think that our problem is the incompleteness of God's Word. It's very easy to say, if God only would have said a little bit more, then I could understand what I should do in this situation. You know, such a tough situation. If God had only said something about this situation, then I'd know what to do. That's a temptation for me, too, and I'm supposed to know better. I teach this. I mean, I don't live by what I teach all the time. So I know it's a temptation for those who don't think about it, too. There is no situation where God expects us to make a right decision, where we cannot make that decision on the basis of Scripture. Isn't that what Paul says? God's inspired word is profitable for instruction in righteousness, that we are perfectly furnished unto every good work. There is no good work required of us that we cannot find our direction from God's word. Yes. I think at this point maybe that's where a lot of people get confused, because you, you've already stated that we cannot always make decisions if we don't have the facts that those facts are necessary. And I think a lot of times when people uh, hear someone saying there is no situation that cannot be uh, judged according to Scripture, they're taking for granted that you know all the facts, when in fact 
That's right. It's, it's just the other way around. What I'm saying is that God's Word gives us all the direction we need. But God's Word does not guarantee that I will perceive the facts correctly. All right? There's still sin to contend with, still the temptation of the world and all that. My point is, let us not ever think that the fault lies in Scripture. Whenever we can't make an ethical decision, the fault must lie in us and our failure to perceive the facts and to see how the Word of God bears on them. God's revelation is not insufficient merely because we are unable or untrained or inept in applying God's revelation to the facts. Okay, let me bring out another thing. Not only the ubiquity of ethics, which means there's no neutrality, and the sufficiency of God's Word, meaning that we have all the guidance we need, but we must notice also that human responsibility continues. Sin has not taken away human responsibility. Sin has not lessened our accountability to God. It has not lowered His requirements. And that's, a, that's something that needs to be proclaimed from the housetops today. There are so many Christians who are teaching or preaching that because we live in a very desperate situation, we've fallen into sin, somehow God doesn't expect His standards to be met. God knows that we aren't able to do that, and so He's lowered His standards. Well, my friends, if God could lower His standards, knowing that we're not able to keep them, then He could lower His standards to the level of our expectation, couldn't He? In which case, there'd be no need for His Son to come and die for our sins, because there would be no sins. He'd lower His standards to meet what we were able to do. But it's just because Christ had to die that you know that God cannot mitigate His standards. God never lowers his standards because we have incapacitated ourselves through sin. God rather gives us the ethical enablement by the power of his spirit to do that which he requires. But now there's another application to this doctrine that human responsibility continues. Okay, if responsibility continues, then there's no situation that forces us to sin. There's no forced sin in any situation. This is perhaps an even more deadly doctrine that's being taught these days in Christian circles that sometimes we're put in a situation where we are forced to sin. There are no alternatives but sinful alternatives. Can you think of a few of them? Imagine that the Gestapo comes to the door asking whether you have Jews in the basement. If you try to fudge, you know that they're going to catch the Jews. They know they're gonna, you know they're going to be on to you and therefore you're going to lead to the death of innocent people. And yet if you don't tell the truth, you're lying and it appears that you're violating one of the commandments of God. That's a, a common example. What about the situation where you're in a lifeboat? And it turns out you have enough food for six people and there are eight people on board. Now, if you don't dump two of the people, you're going to end up killing them all. But if you do dump two of them, you're going to kill innocent people. Or how about that situation when the Indians are surrounding the fort? And they say that one of the people in the fort last night raped one of their women. And if you don't send out Sam Smith, they are going to level the fort and kill everybody inside. And yet you know as commander of the fort that Sam Smith was at your place all night long. You know that he is innocent. But you know that if you don't give up the innocent to die, everybody is going to suffer. What do you do? Okay. Unbelievers are great at coming up with such illustrations. <laughs> they really are. Uh, let me, if you don't mind my referring to my own experience again, believe me, having gone grad, through grad school in philosophy, they love to come up with these illustrations and say, oh yeah, you have absolute standards, now what are you going to do? 
Now, in the face of some of those challenges, and in, in the face of some real-life situations that are pretty torturous, a number of Christians, John Warwick Montgomery is a leading exponent of this doctrine today, a number of evangelical Christians teach us that there are some cases where the only options available are sinful options. And under the circumstances, God expects us to do the lesser of the two evils. And I want to argue that that is not biblical. I want to argue it on, I think, four grounds. Yes, four grounds. First of all, I want to argue against that doctrine on the nature, on the basis of the character of sin. What is sin? Anybody know the children's catechism? Sin is any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. Sin is transgressing God's requirements, to put it very simply. Now, when God charges us with sin, it must always be because we could have done the right, but turned away from it and did the wrong. If God charges us with sin, He's charging us with transgressing rather than obeying. The very nature of sin requires that its opposite be possible. That is, in some sense, we can do otherwise because God requires us to do otherwise. And that means that there can never be a situation which precludes the otherwise. There can never be a situation that precludes the right thing to do. The situation cannot force us to sin because then sin would not be sin. It wouldn't, be it, it wouldn't involve our responsibility and culpability. Now, I want to argue against this doctrine on the basis of the character of God, too. The Bible teaches us that God is a holy God, and as such, He cannot be the author of sin. The Bible teaches that God created the world good. And when we blame our sin on the environment, we are blaming it on God as the creator and governor of our situation. It amounts to saying, God put me in such a world, God put me in such a situation that I can't avoid sinning. So God, I'm not responsible. You are. No, you can't ever accuse that holy and transcendent God of being the author of sin. But then thirdly, let's look at the character of the Messiah. What does Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verses 14 to 16, teach us? It's a vital doctrine when it comes to the atonement. Having then a great high priest who hath passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one that hath been in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Jesus faced every situation that we have to face. That isn't to say he faced every opponent, you know, by name. Uh, as we did. He didn't live all through history and in every geographical region. But every potential ethical situation he faced, every category and class of temptation he knew. Now, if it is true that there are temptations such that the only options are sinful ones, that's one of the temptations Jesus faced. But if the only options are sinful ones, then Jesus could not have faced every situation yet without sin. Don't you see, if you teach that we are forced to sin by the situation, then you must believe that Jesus was forced to sin by the situation. And therefore, he's not a perfect Messiah, and we're still in our sins and under the condemnation of God. And then there's a fourth argument against this uh, idea that we are sometimes forced to sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 teaches us, For there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will, with the temptation, make also a way of escape, that you might be able to endure it. You believe God's faithful? 
The Bible says the faithfulness of God means He never puts you in a situation where there's not a way of escape. He never puts you in a situation where the only thing you can do inevitably is displease Him. He always gives a way of escape. This is what is called in philosophical and in theological ethics the question of tragic moral choice. There are people who say there are some tragic moral choices we have to make. Sometimes you have to make a choice. Tragically, it's a sinful one. It's a sinful one, and there's no alternative to it. Whatever choice we make is going to be a sinful one. And there are some Christians, I've told you, who teach this view of tragic moral choice. And I believe it's a view that needs to be rejected because of the character of sin and the character of God and the character of the Messiah and the promises of God's Word. There's always a way of escape. Any questions on that? Go ahead, yeah, Paul. How do you answer the guy who is a non who's confronted with that situation about the court? I'm, with, I'm still with the Indians. <laughs> John Smith. What do you do? Sam Smith. Sam Smith. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I, I know the answer to the question. I think I know the answer to the question. I'm just debating whether in the last 23 minutes of my lecture time I want to get into it. The answer, let's put it this way. You can always say to an opponent who gives you a tough situation, there that just goes to show the nature of my sin, that I'm not able to give you an answer right off. God's word's sufficient to answer that, but I'm not sufficient because I haven't done my homework. And so I'll go back and I'll study it. Don't ever be afraid to admit your ignorance, especially in a situation where you're supposed to be defending the honor of God. Uh, because it'd be much better to say, well, I've got to go study it. I'm an imperfect Christian, you know. And I'll try to come up with an answer much better than to blurt out an answer which eventually dishonors the Lord. And so um, you have to cultivate the ability to admit that you have to do your homework. But having done your homework, I think the answer is it's better for all of the innocent to die with dignity than for any of us to die with blood on our hands. We don't live in a world which is willing to swallow that. We live in a utilitarian age. My utilitarian professors constantly use such examples to prove that sometimes you have to violate a moral absolute so that you can maximize the happiness of the greatest number. You see how utilitarianism can be used in such a situation to justify the killing of the innocent. And it seems to me what we have to say is that God will reward us for going to our death without blood on our hands, and therefore we will maximize the happiness of the greatest number by obeying the Lord. You've got to learn to turn your enemy's argument on himself. It isn't to say you're going to convert him every time, but I think that does honor the Lord to say, I would rather have us all die without crucifying the innocent than for us to turn over somebody and then live the rest of our life with that guilt on our conscience and have to face the Lord on the final day. Yes, that, that problem is either overstated or it's trivial. Now let me take you on the horns of the dilemma now. The problem, if the statement of the problem implies that we can never know for sure what God's Word requires of us, then the statement of the problem violates the Scriptures themselves because God tells us that He does show us what we're supposed to do in the Bible. And if we can never know for sure, then we can never be wholly accountable to God for what His Word says. And that is to say that sin or the human situation has frustrated the purposes of revelation which is to say that God is not sovereign, which is to say that all that the Bible teaches about God, about man, about God's abilities, about revelation, about the final day, is wrong. Which is to say that, this, that the problem's been overstated. You see what I mean? You've got to push your opponent at that point 
to say, you've got to, you've got to reject the whole biblical system if you believe that, that we can never know for sure. But now on the other hand, if it's stated in a circumspect and cautious way so that it's accurate, then it's simply making the trivial, although it's a significant in a psychological point, it's making the trivial point that we're all sinners and we're prone to error. And therefore, none of us lives to himself. We must, always, we must constantly check our conclusions by the word of God, compare it with the reasoning of other Christians, be subject to the teachers of the church, uh, and on and on and on. God has given us ways to correct our mistakes. And we mustn't be so arrogant as to be unteachable. All right? But that's a trivial point because that applies to everything. We've always got to be willing to say, yes, I'll reconsider if you show me from God's Word. But now notice, if I'm going to be teachable, I've got to grant that God's Word can clearly teach me. Because if I say God's Word can't show me the error of my way, since nobody knows for sure, then that's the greatest ground for arrogance. Because that means there's no reason for me to change my opinion. You don't know any better than I do. And so as it, as it usually turns out, the people who are trying to oppose the biblical system cannot live by the biblical system uh, they have to violate the entirety of it, and the very humility they're trying to engender becomes impossible. Another question, George. Well, I think the confusion comes in in that you're using this lesser of two evils in a um, metaphorical way. Uh, in the realm of politics, when you vote for one man or another, you're not sinning. Now, I can imagine a, a political situation where perhaps God would require us to vote not at all. Okay? Uh, I, I, that's very extreme. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but for the most part, when we say, well, well, we get stuck with the lesser of two evils again, we're speaking metaphorically, meaning neither one of, us get, neither one of these candidates give us anything positive, and so we're going to have to get the guy who uh, is going to do the less damage. All right? But I'm speaking, when I talk about tragic moral choice, literally that the only options are sinful options for which we could be sent to hell if it weren't for the redemption offered by Jesus Christ. And I don't think that political um, situation is there. Now, there are situations where we have sometimes to do the lesser of two physical evils. You know, evil sometimes taken in the sense of pain, right? For instance, um, my child has been bitten by a, uh, a rabid dog. It's going to be very painful for him to go through the series of injections, right? It's going to be very painful. But what happens if he doesn't take the injections and gets rabies? Okay, so I choose the lesser of two evils in the sense that I take the lesser of the two pains as I calculate them. But that, again, is not talking about moral evil. It's talking about pain, physical evil. In the literal moral sense, the Christian is never to do the lesser of two evils because isn't it true by definition one is never supposed to do evil? All right. Um, Time's quickly getting away, and so I'm just going to um, I'm, I'm going to skip some elements in my notes, as I promised you I would do, just so that we um, we spend three hours on each block of material and we get out some things. There's a very important question that faces us today about um, uh, our present situation, the course of history as it affects the standards of God. As you can see, I was going through the outline on, on each point, the natural world, the preternatural world, the social world, the divine human relation, and all that. Uh, we come under the present situation the question of God's law. Has the course of history changed the law of God? Doesn't a new situation require a new standard in ethics? And I think um, it would be irresponsible, whatever your view of theonomy may be, it would just be irresponsible for us to ignore the question and not try to confront it here, because this is where this issue uh, arises. 
We'll have to look at it again when we study the standard of ethics. But since we're now looking at the course of history, past, present, and future, you know, the development of situations, we have to ask what happens to the law through the fluctuation in course of history. And I'd like to present what I believe to be the position of the Westminster Confession of Faith on that, and then you can decide whether you agree with the confession or not. And I say that in such a way, I say that in the spirit of my, uh, my esteemed opponent, Meredith Klein, who says that the confession teaches what I'm going to now tell you, but the confession should be changed. What do I do with my pen? There it is. According to the uh, Westminster Confession, and according to the teaching that I would uh, espouse myself, and again, that reference to the Confession is only a teaching device at this point. We can, in the church courts, decide what we want to make of the Confession at another point. But the Confession says that when you look at the Old Testament law of God, you'll see that it is uh, to be understood according to three categories. The broadest category is moral law. Now, what does the confession mean by moral law? This is something that has to be understood. And um, I've got to go quickly here. You look at the larger catechism in the section that deals with the law of God and especially how the law of God is to be interpreted. And I'll give you those numbers as soon as I turn to it. Okay. Uh, we are told how, what rules are to be observed in the right understanding of the Ten Commandments at question 99. Now, right before that, when we're being introduced to the subject, the moral law is discussed. Question 93, what is the moral law? Now, we've heard a lot of arguments in these days as to what the moral law is. Interestingly enough, the Confession asks that very question and answers it. That the moral law is the declaration of the will of God to mankind, directing and binding everyone to personal perfect and perpetual conformity and obedience thereunto in the frame and disposition of the whole man, soul and body, and in performance of all those duties of holiness and righteousness which he owes to God and man. In short, the moral law is the perpetual law. According to question 93, the moral law are all those standards which, as stated in the Bible, are perpetual. Does that say one thing in favor or against the theonomic thesis? No, because then we have to ask, what are the perpetual laws, right? It isn't sufficient to say, oh, we only want to keep the moral law, but you want to keep more than the moral law. No, because by definition, the point that I'm making in my book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, is that the moral law is broader than many people think. In particular, the Confession tells us that the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. What does it mean that it's summarily comprehended? It means that the summary is found in the Ten Commandments. Is the summary the whole of which it summarizes? To ask an obvious logical point? No, it's not. That's just the summary of it. Now, let me, get, let me go on a little bit more. The moral law, you see, breaks down into, first of all, general precepts, and by a general precept, I mean something stated in a generalized form. Okay, love your neighbor, don't lie to one another, don't commit adultery, and so forth. That's a very generalized form. 
Okay. One of those uh, general laws would be um, thou shalt not steal. Now, is thou shalt not steal binding in the New Testament? Yes, if you look at Romans 13, you'll see that Paul cites the law, thou shalt not steal. Now, the Old Testament has, under the moral law, not only general precepts, but it also has illustrations of application. What in the literature of Old Testament scholarship is usually called case laws. In such and such a case, this is what you do. In such and such a case, that's what you do. In the language of the Puritans that wrote our Confession of Faith, this is called the judicial law. If you'll look in the section, uh, chapter 19, section 4 of the Confession, where the uh, Confession mentions judicial law, it cites Exodus 21, 22, and a portion of chapter 23 as illustrations of judicial law, precisely what I'm talking about, the case laws of the Old Testament. Let's look at a couple of uh, illustrations of these case laws. Look at Deuteronomy 25, 4. Moses says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the grain. You want to know what it means, Thou shalt not steal? Then don't muzzle your ox when he treads out the grain. Here's a case so that you don't steal. In such a case, when you're, muzzling, when you're um, treading with your ox, don't muzzle him. What I want to know is, is that illustration a perpetual? Does that give us a principle which is perpetually binding? Is that also true in the age of the New Testament? Those of you who know the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. Is Paul talking about oxen? No. Is he talking about Old Testament situations? No. He's talking about New Testament ministers. And he says, For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. And so the New Testament shows that this illustration gives us a principle, has an underlying principle that is yet binding today. Why is that called judicial law rather than moral law? Because it's not stated in terms of general precept, it's stated in terms of illustration. And with the change of cases, the principle remains the same, but the application is different. Now we're not talking about corn and oxen, we're talking about remuneration and your pastor. But the principle is the same. Let me give you another illustration. Deuteronomy 22, verse 10. Uh, you're in 25.4 still? Okay, now which verses? If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no son, the wife of the dead, and it goes on with what is called the Leveret Institution. I'm trying to think of the fastest way to deal with this. I think what you have to do is understand the clear teaching of Scripture, that is the categories and the way that the New Testament handles Old Testament law. And then you have to go back and look at some of these difficult passages. It so happens you've raised one of the ones that is very difficult to deal with. Um, and, and reasoning from the clear to the obscure, we say, how should we interpret this in terms of uh, today's situation? Right. And in this case, we don't, it turns out. Because the reason for this is that a man not lose his inheritance in the promised land. We know, and I'm going to be preaching on this this Sunday, it turns out, the promised land was typological of the hope of heaven the inheritance which we have. And with the passing away of the promised land and its significance, there is also a passing away of those laws pertaining to Canaan. And this is one of them. But I don't want to get bogged down in the Leveret institution. At best, let's just say that's a difficult situation. It's one of the obscurities that we must handle after we get the clear passages laid out.
All right? We will come back to it um, under the seventh commandment. Deuteronomy 22, verse 10. Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. All right? There's an illustration of an application of the law of God. Is it binding today? Yeah, it just so happens you chose an illustration that's a toughie. And right now, to make the point, oh, don't be sorry. <laughs> are we supposed to tread? Are we supposed to uh, uh, plow with an ox and an ass together today? Well, yes and no. What is the principle being taught here? Well, if you turn over to Second Corinthians six fourteen, where Paul is talking about immoral unions between believers and unbelievers, you notice that he uses this very principle to, to make his point. He says in... Let me see now. I'm, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Okay. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness and iniquity? What communion has light with darkness? See, Paul uses the principle of the Old Testament law and applies it to a new situation, to a new case. And so, in the case of that judicial law, is it binding or not? Well, you can't give a yes or no answer to that because it's binding in one sense and not binding in another. It's not binding in the sense in which it was stated originally, but it, the principle that it illustrates is binding. And that's why the confession goes into this distinction between judicial and moral law. There's a difference between those which are stated in such a generalized form that there is no alteration given a change of historical cases. But then illustrations do change given a new culture, new situations. Now, let me give you a general, a general precept. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Is that binding today? Okay. Let's say that you do not believe that anything outside of the Ten Commandments is binding in the New Testament. And then somebody says, well now, with respect to sexual purity, is homosexuality allowed today? Anybody who says that nothing outside of the Ten Commandments is binding is in real trouble because the New Testament clearly condemns homosexuality. Well, how can you understand that? Well, given what the Confession says and my way of interpreting it, the general precept is illustrated. Sexual purity means no homosexuality. How about incest? Can you commit incest today? Well, if you think we're limited to the Ten Commandments, there's no mention of incest in the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments encompass incense if they are assume. How should I put it? If the Ten Commandments summarily comprehend the whole perpetual duty of man, then that's just a summary statement, and we find another illustration in the Old Testament against incense. Okay, now there is one more category of law that we need to put down here, and then I'll make some applications. The Confession speaks also of ceremonial law. And it says explicitly in chapter 19 that this ceremonial law includes a prefiguration of Christ and his benefits and some moral duties. Okay, chapter 19 at section 3. Besides this law commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances that is typifying something, symbolizing something to come, all right, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth divers instructions of moral duties. And so what we have in the ceremonial law are laws which point us to Christ and his salvation, as well as laws that direct the 
redeemed community. In particular, laws which show the redeemed community how to be holy. Now, both in Hebrew and in Greek, the word holy means to be set apart, to be separate. And so certain ceremonial laws show us our moral duty to be set apart from others, from the world in particular, to be holy people, to be a holy, redeemed people, because we have, through these laws, come to know Jesus Christ. Now, in Leviticus 17, verse 11, I'll give you an illustration of a ceremonial law. Leviticus 17, verse 11. There Moses teaches, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, for I have given it unto you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh atonement by reason of the life. Alright? Blood is necessary for atonement. Is that true today? Well, now, it is true. And yet it's not true. It's not true in that we don't take the blood of animal sacrifices anymore. But Hebrews 9, verses 22 through 24, tell us that it was necessary that Christ shed his blood for our atonement. Hebrews 10, 4 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement. And so, this was a law that points us to Christ. We no longer keep it in the form of the Old Testament Jews. But we do keep the law as fulfilled in Christ. Now let me give you an illustration before we break tonight of one of these ceremonial principles showing the holiness of the redeemed community. Um, it's hard to pick. I have a number of here. Let's look at Leviticus 20, verses 22 to 26. Leviticus 20, verses 22 to 26 Ye shall therefore keep all my statutes and all mine ordinances, and do them, that the land whither I bring you to dwell therein vomit you not out. And ye shall not walk in the customs of the nation which I cast out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. But I have said unto you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am Jehovah your God, who has separated you from the peoples. All right, he, he specifically says, you're to be different from the pagan nations that I've driven out of the land. I have separated you from these people. Therefore, verse 25, you shall make a distinction between the clean beast and the unclean. And for the sake of time, I won't read on. He says in the next verse, you are a holy people. The redeemed community was to separate clean from unclean when it came to meats because that typified for them their separation from the world. Now, do we still keep those laws today? Yes and no. In Acts the 10th chapter, Peter is told specifically, God has made all meats clean. We can eat of any meat that we want. But what was the principle? The principle was separation from the Gentile nations. Why is Peter shown that he can eat all meats now? Because the gospel is to go to the Gentiles, to Cornelius. Now the separation is not between Gentile and Jew, it's between the church and the world, the international church, the redeemed community, and the world. And yet we must still keep the holiness requirements of the Old Testament. If you look at uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 17, we were just there a minute ago, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 17, Paul goes on to say, verse 17, Wherefore come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Well, does that violate Acts the 10th chapter, that there is no separation between clean and unclean? No, because Paul is using the principle of separation from the unholy world of darkness. And that still applies to us today. And so the, I think the confession is very scriptural 
when it says the ceremonial law points us to Christ, it typifies his saving benefits, and shows the redeemed community certain moral duties, its holiness and separation from the world. Now, as to historical change, the course of history changes the judicial law and it changes the ceremonial law in terms of how we obey them. Why doesn't the course of history change the moral law or the general precepts of morality? Because they are stated in such a generalized form that there isn't anything that changes from situation to situation. Thou shalt not steal. All right, that's generalized enough that the course of history doesn't alter it. The issue is what becomes stealing from situation to situation. So history changes our observation of the judicial law and our observation of the ceremonial law. My closing point tonight, I promise I'll stop. My closing point is that there is a different reason for the change in each case, however. The, his, the judicial law changes its application through the course of history simply because the cases change. All right? So we don't live in a society where there are flat roofs, where we entertain people. Consequently, we don't have to have a railing around our roof. Well, we do live in a society where uh, people can be endangered because a railing's not on our front porch or there's a fence not around our backyard swimming pool or a situation like that. With the change of history, the change of case, there's a change of illustration, a change of the judicial law. But that, that is not the reason for the change in the case of ceremonial laws. The accomplishment of our salvation, the accomplishment of redemption, changes our observation of the ceremonial law. You see, Christ has come fulfilling the shadows of the Old Testament. And so don't think that the judicial law should be merged into the ceremonial law. They're not of the same ethical category. The judicial law changes because of the flux of history. The, the culture changes, pure and simple. The ceremonial law changes because of the accomplishment of redemption. The moral law doesn't change because it's stated in such generalized terms that there's nothing to change. And I know that's very quick, but you should see how the situation, situational and teleological perspective in ethics, um, affects the law of God. And now we have to go to the law of God and find its general precepts, its illustrations, and its ceremonial precepts. And sometimes it's not always clear to us. That's our fault, by the way, and not Scripture's. Okay, thank you for bearing with me going overtime tonight. We'll come back next week, and maybe I'll say a few remaining words about this, and then we'll get on to the motive of ethics. What is love as God requires it of us?